name is Will Cody, and I'm preaching today from the book of James. So James is the half-brother of Jesus. They have the same mother, but Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and James's father is Joseph. So that's kind of interesting, half-brother of Jesus. And he became a, a leader in the early church, and we have a letter from James to an early church, an early Christian community. And this is probably the first uh, New Testament um, document that we have that was written. This is the earliest document we have is this book of James. So you could turn there in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Um, it's a short text. It's just two verses. And basically when I get up here, I read from James. We read a few verses. We're just going through it verse by verse. This is where we happen to be today. James chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. James writes, <clears throat> If anyone thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's ask him to help us. Father, this is a challenging text, a short text, it's a simple text, but it's a challenging text, and we ask You'd help us first to understand it, and second to apply it to our lives. And this is only, this will only happen if you, by your Holy Spirit, help us. Please set us free to love you and love our neighbors. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I met my wife in Korea about 14 years ago. And one of the bonus things about marrying someone from a different culture um, is that you have completely different context. So stories to them that are not that crazy are very crazy to you and vice versa. This is one story that Jummy told me one time that I think is crazy. Maybe it's a Korean thing. Maybe it's just, uh, maybe this is just Jummy's crazy uh, family. But uh, so when Jummy was like eight or nine years old, um, she got tonsillitis. Has anybody gotten their tonsils taken out in here? Anybody? I love doing these polls up here when I'm up here. Uh, so the doctor told, the doctor told Jummy that, Jummy's parents, that she was going to have to get her tonsils out. But Jummy's dad, um, they were, at this time, they were, farmers. They're in the countryside of Korea. They're poor. And Jummy's dad did not want to have to pay for this surgery. So um, one day, Jummy was watching TV, minding her own business, when her dad walks in and tells her that he has some special medicine for her. And all she has to do is drink it, and this is going to heal her tonsils. She doesn't have to get surgery. So Jummy was very relieved at this until she saw the, what sh this medicine was. And it was this steamy, hot goop. It was kind of dark. It was kind of like uh, earth clay colored. And he tells her to drink this medicine, and then she'll be better and not have to get this surgery. So she starts gulping this down, and it's, it looks terrible. It tastes even worse. And she's gulping it down, and she's doing it like one gulp at a time, her eyes closed. And it tastes like something like literal dirt, but there's something else that she can't quite put a name to. So she gets it down, she did the last gulp, and she's drinking the last gulp, and she opens her eyes and looks into the dregs of what's left in the cup. And that's when she realized what she's been drinking. There's a, what does she see in the bottom of the cup? John? Worms! <laughs> this is one of our favorite family stories. <laughs> Earth, somebody else knew what was in there too, weird. So uh, maybe this is not as uncommon as I thought. It was earth, there was earthworms. She was drinking hot earthworm goop. What her, she runs into the kitchen, she, there's a kettle on the stove, there's hundreds of earthworms in there. What her dad had done was, he had heard from one of the village elders that they were in, 
that somehow this would, if you, if you were to get, take 100 earthworms, boil them, and then make a, a tea out of it, basically, and that would cure her tonsillitis, this hot earthworm tea. And I felt really bad for Jung Mi when I heard this story, and I felt bad for her, her dad, too, because, you know, he, they're poor. He's trying to save money. He's trying to save his daughter from having to get this surgery. He had been told that this was real, true medicine and that this would save him all those troubles. But, and this is the worst part, if you didn't see this coming, this medicine was worthless. <laughs> Jummy still had to get her tonsils removed after all this, and it was all a sham. This medicine was just this worthless, disgusting goop that did nothing for her. So James, in our text, he is warning his audience. He's talking to Christians, and he doesn't want them to deceive themselves into living a life that is basically worthless goop. He doesn't want them to live a sham. He doesn't want them to be a sham. He doesn't want them to be hypocrites and fakers. He wants them to live a, the true life based on what Jesus has done for them. He uses the word religion, three, there's two verses here. He uses the word religion two times, uh, three times actually in this text. Now we don't use that word religion very much in Presbyterian circles. It's actually, religion is kind of a bad word in, in Presbyterian circles. I don't know if you knew that. That's how I feel. I, I bet if I polled people here, we'd all have different definitions of what that word religion means. Uh, we probably have different connotations, uh, good and bad connotations when we think about that word. But what does James mean here in this context of our text? He is simply talking about the response to what you most deeply love and trust in. That is your religion. The, w the way that works out in your life. If you trust and believe in something at the core of your being, it's going to affect your day-to-day -day life. This is your religion. So, for example, if I love and trust in money, then my religion, my response, is, gonna get the, is to get the best-paying job I can, to work my, my booty off for it, and to not let anything or anyone get in my way. That would be my, my religion. If I, love, if I love and trust in Pokemon cards, then my religion, my response, is going to be to collect them, to trade them, to buy them, to beg my parents to buy more, to talk about Pokemon cards with my parents nonstop about all the time, and keep them safe in my binder, right? That would be my religion. That would be my response to the thing that I love. And if we trust in Jesus, if that's, if that's our deepest love and our deepest trust, if we trust that Jesus took on himself all of the punishment for my sins, all the terrible things that I've thought and said and done, and all the things that I will think and will say and will do, he took the punishment for me for all those things. And then he rose from the dead, and now I'm right with God forever, no matter what. And Jesus is going to come back to rule on this earth. That, if that's what I trust in, then that is going to radically change the way that I live. My religion, my response, this is what James is talking about in our text. So these things I was just saying, basic Christian truths, basic Christian beliefs. James wants our lives to line up with what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. So is our religion one that continues to grow and delight and please our Lord and Savior and line up with him? This is what we'll call true religion. I'm just making this, this term up for the sake of this uh, sermon. Is that true religion, or is it worthless, even disgusting goop that God does not want? 
Our three points are directly from this text. This is what true religion looks like. There's more that true religion looks like, but James zeroes in on these three things, and it actually works out in the rest of James. He talks about this stuff a lot. These are ve- these three things that are very important to James. True religion, and this is straight from the text. I, th- James helps me. I have to think about sermon points at all. True religion bridles the tongue. True religion visits orphans and widows. And true religion keeps oneself unstained from the world. Those are our three points we're going to go through. This is what Christian, your Christian life should look like. So our first point comes directly from verse 27. I'll just read it one more time. James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the first evidence that our religion is true and an outworking of our relationship with God through Christ is that you bridle your tongue. Um, James uses lots of little funny metaphors. If you really get into it, they're kind of funny. I think he had a sense of humor. This is a funny one, especially if you take it literally. Um, Do you bridle your tongue? Um, The concept of bridling comes from riding horses, and this is a world that I'm not even going to pretend to know anything about, horse world. Um, If you, I think I rode a horse once or twice, heavily supervised. Um, if you've spent minimal time riding horses or animals like me, you can just it, take his metaphor and let's just go, run with it. Imagine that your tongue is like 50 times bigger than it is. And imagine that it's wanting to go wherever it wants, and you're riding it like a bunking bronco. How are you going to get control over this crazy, huge tongue that's going wherever it wants? You're going to have to bridle it. You put some kind of gear on it, on its head. Some, if your tongue has a head somehow. It's getting weird. Okay, so you put some kind of gear on it, and you can direct it where you want to go. So you begin to control where your conversation leads. You can control the words that are actually coming out of your mouth. Now, bridling the tongue doesn't mean that you stop moving. It means that, rather, that you can control it now. You can stop it from going to these dangerous, the conversations from going to these dangerous, harmful places, and you can actually lead to healthy safe, good places with your conversation, with your tongue. Now, what does a bridled tongue look like for James? At first, it might sound like James is talking about using bad words. That is not what James is talking about here. He's not talking about foul language, bad words. It goes a lot deeper than that, a lot broader than that. James talks a lot about, in this book, in this letter, talks a lot about speech. He talks a lot about the tongue. Um, and here are the kinds of things that James points out. Here's every single mention of tongue. This is what James is talking about. There's, I think there's seven, okay, real quick. This is the kind of stuff James is talking about. He's talking about the tongue, the, the, your mouth, being used to endlessly justify and defend yourself before God and others. Using the tongue to flatter rich people so they can give you stuff and humiliate poor people because they can't give you anything. Using the tongue to wish people well but actually never lift a finger to help. You're pretending that you care about people. Using the tongue to claim you have faith when no good works confirm your faith. Using the tongue to praise God in one breath and curse people, talk junk about them in the next. Finally, using your tongue to boast about your plans for the future. I would have never thought to add that one, but that's what James thinks is a misuse of the tongue, boasting about your plans for the future. The unbridled tongue, James says, boasts, and puts others down. It sucks up to the powerful, and it's, it sparks conflict, and it endlessly justifies itself. And a Christian who does not bridle his tongue, James says they are deceiving themselves, their religion 
no, no matter how much they think they're being uh, good religiously. You can think God is pleased with your religion. James says, an unbridled tongue spoils everything. Your religion is proved to be, what is the word? Worthless. He calls it worthless. It's like your whole life is some earthworm goop tea. Nobody wants that. <laughs> when I was a kid one time, I remember, I thought it would be fun. I was plunging a toilet for some reason. I was plunging a toilet in my house. <laughs> and um, I had a great idea. I was like, I wonder what happens if I just keep doing this. What will happen if I just keep plunging the toilet? And after about 10 or 15 seconds, I started hearing sounds from the pipes and the other, the other pipes in the bathroom. And then up in the sink came some very dirty, gross water. <laughs> and I never told my parents about that. And don't ever try that at home. And um, I learned something that day. I learned that where did the sewage come from that came out of the drain? Why did it come out of the drain? It was because at the bottom of these pipes, there was full of sewage. It all led down to, to sewage. <laughs> and if what comes out of our mouths is putting others down, boasting about yourself, causing divisions and gossip, that is just showing what is down inside your heart. And you can have your own list of thing, good things you do, but this proves it's all crud. Now, why is an unbridled tongue so incriminating? Because it betrays a heart that has not been conquered and not been changed by the love of God in Christ. Your tongue proves how rebellious your heart still is. You're not a disciple at heart. You're still a rebel at heart. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. He says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance, so whatever's in your heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, whether good or evil. Beautiful things or disgusting things. Jesus says that what exactly what James says here, that what comes out of your mouth proves what's in your heart. Boasting, self-justifying, slandering comes from a heart that has not been changed. Now, what does a changed heart look like? How, what, is a, what does a bridled tongue look like? We'll get to that near the end of this text. Um, but the first mark of true religion is that is that of a bridled tongue. The second test of true religion is, more, is a positive one. It's, we're going to do something. This is James' second point. James' second point is that true religion manifests itself in visiting the orphans and widows in their affliction. Look with me in verse 27. It says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So in the Old Testament, this group, the orphans and the widows, in the Old Testament, they're often called the fatherless and the widows. This, and they're often grouped together with uh, the poor, with the uh, sojourners, the people that were passing through Israel at the time. These were the people that um, had no power in the community. These were the, the vulnerable people, the fatherless, the widow, the poor, the, the sojourner. They're vulnerable, and they're helpless. Uh, these people are easy targets for evil people, evil people with power. Um, these people are vulnerable to oppressive systems. And they have no one to help them. And they are vulnerable to exploitation, marginalization, and they're hopeless unless someone comes along and visits them and meets them and um, brings their case up and points out the injustice that's happening. Care for the helpless. And care for the helpless, I don't know. This is, this is uh, the knit into the 
fabric of who God is, this care for the poor, the care for the oppressed. And it's always been a concern for God's people because of that. It's always, it's always been a priority for his people. Uh, we read that text from uh, Micah, right? Why was God, God gets really angry in the Old Testament when his people do not take care of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. He gets very angry about it. Um, in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham, so God, it's kind of weird. God's having a conversation with himself and Abraham's listening in Genesis 18. And I think we'll have this text. And here's what God says. He says, talking to himself and Abraham's listening. He says, for I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him. That's you and me, if you trust, if you're a son of Abraham. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now notice, he says, the way of the Lord is doing righteousness and justice. God chose and saved Abraham, not because he was doing justice and righteousness, He chose him and saved him so that he would do righteousness and justice. And if what's coming up for you when you hear the word like um, righteousness and justice, if that that sounds like stopping crime or joining neighborhood watch or law and order, that is not what this is talking about at all. The Old Testament prophets are full of accusations against who? The leaders of Israel for neglecting and exploiting the fatherless and the widow and the poor and the sojourners. When instead they should have been defending them and making space in society, making space for them to flourish. Visiting the orphans and widows is a call to those with power to do righteousness and justice for those without it. We are to do the visiting. We are God's ambassadors. The exploited people, the powerless people, they cannot defend them. By definition, they cannot defend themselves. Um, they're mostly even not even heard. Um, have you ever noticed in the Bible, have you ever noticed, I, looked, I looked, tried to look for some verses for this, but is there any place in the Bible where it says, like, hit back, defend yourself? Isn't it weird that that's, like, not in the Bible anywhere? <laughs> Why is that not in the Bible? Hit back, defend yourself, push back. Why is that not in the Bible? It's because we are supposed to be defending each other. We're supposed to be taking care of each other and defending each other. Um, when I see someone being bullied, I'm supposed to step in. I'm supposed to tell an adult about it, or I'm step in and, and make sure that this stops. Um, if someone is getting talked about behind their backs, I tell people to stop. When I hear someone make a racist remark about a person or a group of people, I speak up and I say, wait, what did you just say? <laughs> what did you mean by that exactly? You know, get in there, be curious. What is this person? What's going on with this person? When I see signs of abuse, I interject and I ask, what's going on here? God has put you in that moment, in that place, for a reason, to be his ambassador, to practice justice and righteousness. This is what God's people do. This should be, uh, this is part of your identity. It's woven into your nature now. This is what God's people do. This is what he chose and saved you for. Now, that's what the, the, um, those words mean, um, righteousness and justice. Um, let me give one more different way that we can apply this. The word visit, um, in the Old Testament, it means God coming and doing stuff. Sometimes it means God just coming. Um, Do you remember in Exodus, we read a little bit about this story in front of that psalm. In Exodus, the people of Israel are being enslaved, and they're being exploited, 
Then Moses is sent by God to the Israelite elders, and Moses tells them that God has seen them, and God has heard them, and he's seen and heard what the Egyptians have been doing to them. And then, at the end of Exodus 4, it says this. It says, and the, this is right after this, and the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. What is it that really ministered to these people in this moment? It was knowing that God had visited them, knowing that he knew and saw and heard them in their affliction. This actually ministered to these people. It healed them. Uh, maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes, visit means just literally showing up and being present with someone in their distress. Because sometimes you can't do anything for someone who's hurting. Sometimes you don't know what to do for someone who is hurting and in distress and oppressed. When I was in uh, college, when was when Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana and Mississippi in that area, and I went with my local RUF uh, to drive down there, and we were helping a local church and in Louisiana, and the pastor there said, at that church, like he said, so we're gonna go out into the neighborhoods and you know, break, you know, to help physically. And he said, listen, people absolutely need your physical help. They absolutely need it. But listen, they just want someone to share their story with. Take time everywhere you go to listen to these people. Just listen to their stories. And I did not believe him. I thought that was ridiculous. I'm just gonna go out there, bust down some, some moldy walls and you know, fix their problems. Um, so we would get to a house, and I would show up and just get to work destroying some rotting wall where the, it flooded like five, six feet. So I noticed there was a, a couple people in my group who were not doing any work at all. And I started getting annoyed at these slackers because all they would do would go talk to the homeowners. <laughs> and I noticed that after they talked to the homeowners, the homeowners changed. They looked happier. They were relieved. And I thought, wow, maybe I can do this too. So I started trying it out. And sure enough, I could see that these people were ministered to simply by being present with them, visiting, really listening, so that they felt heard and seen and understood. And I'm just, all I'm doing is visiting, meeting them in their affliction. And what was kind of helped me out in the situation was that I had no advice to give these people. <laughs> I'm a college student coming to these families' houses who their house is destroyed. I got no advice for you. <laughs> and I also don't have any platitudes. I'm not like, oh, things will be okay. You can't say that when their possessions are just all, you know, scattered all over the house because of the flood. And their house is rotting. I had no platitudes to give them. I had no advice to give them. And I could just listen and be there with them in their affliction. And it was healing. I might have said this here. I know I've said it in RUF a lot, but one person in, in pain plus another person equals less pain for that first person. I love that equation, and it's true. They had FEMA. They had churches. They had other organizations coming, but no one had come to just simply visit with them and be with them in this disaster, in their distress. So when the text says visit here, Maybe sometimes that's all it means. It's to just visit and give the gift of yourself to another person. This is true religion. Defending the poor and visiting. Defending the poor and helpless and defending. Defending the poor and helpless and visiting with the poor, helpless, and in distress. This is what true religion looks like. This is what you were saved to do. This is who you're saved to be. So, true religion is bridling the tongue. True religion is visiting orphans. 
and widows in their distress. And our last point, true religion is keeping oneself unstained from the world. So read with me in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before the Father is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James's last point here is that true religion manifests, manifests itself in keeping yourself unstained from the world. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we're going to burn our rock and roll records? And I don't know, a lot of caricatures come to my mind when I hear this. They're not what James is saying. <laughs> now, when James says world, he means it the same way that other biblical writers mean. He means like John, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that he, the world that he gave his only son. The world here, what is that? That's the whole world, the whole human scheme to live without God. The whole rebellious scheme to live without his rules, without his reign, is everything that is opposed to God, opposed to the leadership, the lordship of Jesus. Um, and how does God feel about the world? What do you think? How does God feel about the world? He loves the world. He sent his son to die for this people that hate his guts. So we love the world too. But unfortunately, the world has different fundamental trusts than we do. And that means that our religion is going to be different. And it's going to be hard for us because we live in the world, we play in the world, we go to school in the world, we shop in the world. Our friends are, a lot of our friends are of the world, a lot of the uh, family are, are of this world. It's going to be hard not to let the religion of the world, which is not based on trust in Jesus, come to influence us. We should be, we should be different for example, our speech should be different. Um, how we treat the orphan and widow should be different. What James is talking about here is that the church, the church's religion, that, um, and religion in the sense that we've been using it today, the church's religion, the outworking of her faith in Jesus Christ, will inevitably be a contrast community to the world. No matter where and when the church happens to be, the 5th century, 1st century, 21st century, we are always going to be a contrast community until Jesus returns. Um, Jomi, I was talking to Jomi about this, and she helped me out here. She pointed me to a great uh, book by my, this guy, Michael Goheen. He's a theologian. And he asks two, uh, two questions. The first one's the most pertinent. The second one's a little bonus question for us. But the first question is, what are the spiritual currents, here it is, what are the spiritual currents in our 21st century Western culture that we must set our lives against to be unstained from? Where are we most easily taken captive by the world and its religion? And then, I'm going to answer that in a question, a question in a second, but a so, uh, bonus question here. What do these spiritual currents of the world, these, what do they reveal about the religious hunger of the people around us to which our lives, by living our, our contrast lives, can actually be good news for them? as a contrast community. Here are some examples that Goheen adds that I, th I think are really helpful. Just think of, this is completely different than burning your rock and roll records. This is a lot better. Uh, here are some examples of remaining unstained from the world today for today's church. Um, see how bridling your tongue, too, fits in with many of these. Um, okay, I have a list here. And I, I think they'll be on the screen. Just think about the life, think about the picture of, of the life that this is kind of putting together. What, what, what are the, somebody who is like this, what a beautiful life this is, okay? Um, gratuitous, gratuitous self-giving love in a world of self-interest. 
That's like over-the-top, uncalled-for, self-giving love. Humility in a world of arrogant, self-indulgent, and self-centered behavior. Patience in a world of immediate gratification. Contentment and joy in a world dominated by a frantic and hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. These are all things we're tempted toward, right? Um, Thanksgiving in a world of entitlement. Self-control and marital fidelity in a world oversaturated by sex. Truth in humility and love and boldness in a world of uncertainty. Um, Out of love, giving up your rights and privileges in a world that screams, mine. (laughs) Simplicity of just having enough in a world of excess. Maybe, you know, I have enough saying that. (laughs) Praise for others. This is uh, the tongue part. Praise for others in a world of narcissism. Um, Hope in a world of despair. Commitment in a world that fears missing out. And radical hospitality in a Western world of growing, scary, isolation. In 21st, USA, 21st century USA, um, this is a pretty good picture of what it looks like to remain unstained by the world. It's a lot better than just poo-pooing, you know, a song or music or TV show. This, this is a life of true religion motivated by the love and care of God in, tr- in Christ. Um, now, as, as I get here to the end of this text, um, there is probably some point in this text where you're like, yikes, if this is the baseline for Christianity, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> uh, me too. And it would be nice if we could just come to the Lord's table right now and say, God, Jesus, help us. Help me. And we're going to do that in a second when we pray. But um, just remember, th- th- this is, these are all responses to what God has done for us in Christ. Um, Steve said it's something like this earlier, that these are all responses to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He loved and saved us when we were rebels. And all these things are in response. There's nothing we can do to mess up our salvation. If you're, but if you're like, uh, I'm just going to say whatever I want, I don't care. Or if you're going to be like, I don't care about the poor and uh, oppressed. Or I love getting stained by the world. Um, then there might be a problem. <laughs> but if you trust in Jesus, he is the basis for your salvation. Not your good works. Not your response to it. So, brothers and sisters, let's ask him for help this week, to open our eyes to the places where I'm not bridling my tongue. Open the places to people in my life that are being mistreated, that I actually have, can step in and defend or be with. Or those places where I am living like the world, like my, my trust is not in Jesus, it's in something else. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you so much for this text <clears throat> and for pointing us again to the ways that you've saved us. You've saved us to be to be a beautiful person. And would you grow us, and when we fail, bring us back, as um, somebody said, um, to confess to you (coughs) that we need help and that we've sinned. And we always know that you will always forgive us because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.